Welcome in, welcome in. This is another edition of Patrick Jones Baseball. I want to thank you guys for stopping by and listening. We actually have two interviews on this episode. I got some great feedback from last week when we did two interviews and combined it into one episode, so I'm going to do it again. Uh, first interview, if you're a Cincinnati, Ohio native, no surprise, no stranger, Sean Casey. Um, Sean actually talks a, bit, a little bit about uh, travel baseball, um, who he likes for this upcoming season. And he also, I get I get a little selfish and ask if he'd ever want to manage for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, the Reds have been struggling the last couple of years, so hey, you never know. I think uh, the mayor would be a fantastic option. Second interview is with Scott Stalker. Uh, Scott is an independent pitching coach, and he's also a high school coach as well. Um, probably the most knowledgeable guy about pitching that I know. He really breaks down mechanics for you. Um, we go over weighted balls, all that stuff. So you guys are going to enjoy both of these interviews. And please make sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Welcome to Patrick Jones Baseball. I am Patrick Jones, former professional baseball player and host of this podcast. My day job is a podcaster and my night job is a baseball instructor. I am currently giving hitting and pitching lessons for all ages. If interested, please email me at jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. I hope you guys enjoy today's episode, and let's get to work. We are now live with three-time All-Star and a member of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, Sean Casey. Sean, thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Patrick, thanks for having me, man. So now that you're retired as a as a former Major League Baseball player, what's the offseason look like for you? <laughs> well, I got four kids, so I'm always running them around. Seems my two boys are in high school, which is crazy to think because you know they were both born in Cincinnati. Seems like yesterday. So I'm running around with them. I have two little girls that are 12 and 7. So you always feel like you're running to basketball games, you're running to practice, you're doing all that stuff. I work for Major League Baseball Network too. So I'm not up there all the time, but like every other week I kind of jump up there. So with the kids and the, and the MLB Network stuff, I definitely keep myself busy. Do your two sons play baseball? Yeah, my sons play basketball and baseball. Way better athletes than I was. I don't know if they could hit like I could, but they're way, yeah. better, way better athletes than I was. So it's kind of been fun to watch them, especially playing hoops. What's the toughest um, thing that, about being a broadcaster? What's that, what was that transition like from a player to broadcaster? Well, I mean, I think initially, like, you know, when I first got out of the game, it was kind of critiquing the other players because you, you're like, these are my buddies. Like, these are the guys I just got done off the field with that was a little different at first um asking questions you know i'm sure you, you run tough, this. It, yeah. it's tough it's not as easy as you think asking the right questions trying to get you know so that's been a skill I've, i'm still you know learning and, and, and getting better at um but it's just been a it's been a lot of fun though man you know talking baseball and not having to really perform it's a lot easier it's a lot easier yeah it's a lot easier um let's see during the let's see during like your season for example back when you were playing the, the whole launch angle thing wasn't oh, yeah. as big or anything mm-hmm. um what's your take on all that you know what i mean a different terminology i think you know i think i think guys are looking to get the ball in the air more i think with the sh- defensive shifts and all this craziness and i think that people are starting to realize that you know there's a lot of room out there in the outfield there's only three guys covering those gaps if you hit the ball in the, in the air more if you get you know get that whatever you want to say launch angle you know cuz i think you can quantify it now you can you can you can justify you can see with all the you know the apps the the different companies to the diamond kinetics the uh, you know and the different companies that can measure you know the the launch 
launch angle and stuff. It's a real thing, but I think what it, what it really is is it's about getting the ball in the air, you know, getting the bottom half of the ball, catching the ball out front, trying to get it in the air, driving in the gaps, get it to the outfield where there's a lot of space. And, uh, you know, I think that then in turn you're seeing guys put the ball in the air and, and hit, hit more home runs. But do you think as a young, like, youth player that they should be focusing on that? Because I know exit velocity is huge. You see all these different bats. <laughs> you know programs. what? I, you know what? Listen, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you're not going to tell Billy Hamilton, "Hey, man, you got to get a better launch angle." Like you got to play to your strengths. If you're a guy that, if you're a guy that's that's a fast guy that p- can put the ball on the ground, like hit the ball in the air, you're out. You're and you're probably not hitting home runs, so you're, you know, you're flying out. D- even if it's a deep fly out, you're out. So you know, for me, I would say I would I would concentrate for for younger players. You know, work on hitting line drives. You know, really really trying to you know d- drive the baseball. And as you get stronger, as you get bigger, as you as you start to evolve uh, into a man, and you get that test testosterone going and you get some muscles and you can start learning to really use your body use your backside drive the baseball use your hands the way they're supposed to be used start hitting the ball in the air and see if you can get out of the park if you can get out of the park well now it's time to start talking about maybe you know getting a little more lift on the ball yeah i love that i completely agree you know all these all these kids are you know dropping their back shoulder and everything and then yeah. striking out every other time it's funny yeah and it, you know what's funny if you really analyze the swing <clears throat> it's not about dropping your back so i think that's where people don't understand what, what they're doing you know, you you still approach the ball almost in a downward plane. You know, people you don't hit down on the ball, but you're you come to the you come at the ball like you're landing the plane, right? You're going to gradually make a a movement down to the baseball, and your barrel is always below your hands, even on a pitch that's up in the zone, down. Your barrel is always below your hands, right? So, you, you know, I think people start to think they need to create this sitting back and because you because the the biggest thing is you want to get off your backside. You don't want to just drop back and pop one up. You want to get off your backside. You know, hitting a baseball is not easy, so you have to do so many things right. So I think you really have to know what you're looking at. If you're going to start t- teaching launch angle or looking at it if you're, if you're a coach, you really got to know what you're talking about before you tell a kid, hey, listen, just start hitting pop-ups or get the ball in the air. You know? Yeah, right. There's a certain way to do it. Yeah, if you're not strong enough, yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah. Travel baseball has become huge over the past few years. I was actually talking to a parent the other day that they had spent over like $20,000 this past year like, wow. traveling their kid around. Crazy. Um, what's your view on all on I'm not a big – I'm just – you know, my kids My kids are decent players. I don't know where they'll go, but I'm a big believer you get better on your own. Because you weren't a big prospect. No. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I, I wasn't even recruited by anybody out of high school, but I could hit, and I hit every day after school. Uh, you know, when I was a freshman in high school, I really didn't get recruited. I'm a freshman in high school, I didn't play a lot. My dad was like, you're not glaringly better than everyone else. you got to start hitting every day. So a batting cage had opened up in the town next to me. I started hitting every day. You know, and as I hit every day, all of a sudden I started, I started to realize I am getting glaringly better than everyone else. But I didn't run great, didn't a lot of stuff, and I didn't have any college scholarship offers. But I knew my dad's big message to me was preparation meeting opportunity. Keep being prepared, and an opportunity will eventually come along. And it did at the end of my senior year. I had four games to go. I went four for four, eight ribbies, four doubles, left center, right center. Ooh. University of Richmond coach had dr- driven up from, from Richmond, Virginia to see me play. Got like a really small scholarship to go there. And that's how I ended That was the only offer I had, Division two, one, two, or three. They, they end up being mid, mid-range Division one, But that's how I got there. So I look at – I know how much hard work it takes and how much effort it takes to really get good at a craft, to develop a skill. Repetition is the mother of skill. No team you play on, no $20,000 of travel, no moving around all over the place is going to make you a great player. you got to make yourself a great player with the time that you put in when no one's looking. I think that's the 
what I preach to my kids. And then I, but I do say there is a time and a place for, it, but I think it's more in high school when you, when you've developed those skills, when you've gotten better. And now all of a sudden you can go match up your skills against guys that have all developed physically. And now you can really, now you can really see how you match up. But I love that though. I mean, you weren't a big time player, you know, in high school, big prospect. You still made it to the major leagues. You don't have to go to the SEC. You know, all these kids are obsessed with me. these high level and they go to all these showcases and this and that. Totally agree. Totally agree. As a matter of fact, I, I remember looking back at a, a couple, a friend of mine's sons both got drafted at high school and ended up going to, I think, Georgia Tech at the time. They were number one in the country. And I even told him, I said, listen, man, everyone that goes to Georgia Tech is drafted out of high school. Go to a place where you can play right away. Like, for me, I lucked out of going to Richmond. It was the perfect place for me because, like I said, we were in the CCAC. No, no, we were in the Colonial Athletic Association, the CAA. And, I, you know, we were a mid-level D1 program, and I was able to start freshman year. So I was freshman All-American. Go sophomore year, go play in the Cape Cod League, do well there, win the division, one batting title my junior year, and then, bam, I'm a second-round pick of the Indians. But it didn't just, you know, it happened by getting a chance to just play every day. Yeah, you're not going to get better just sit on the bench. You're not. You're yeah. absolutely not. You're absolutely not. Now, you were notorious for being a clubhouse guy, a yeah. leader. Um, what? How do you become a good leader? There's a lot of younger players listening to this, uh, yeah. high school coaches. You know what? You become a good leader. I think, I think the definition of a good leader is somebody that cares about people. You know, at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of different people in a clubhouse. There's a lot of different personalities. You got to find a way to relate to everybody where you, where you really show you care about them as a person first, not just a player. I mean, you care about anybody as a player. That's easy. But the person and when the, the ups and downs of the game, the failures, all those things, are you really there for them as a person? I think and I think if you show that, that you love these guys, that you care, people will follow you. Okay, so it's real, but it's, so it's not just you know going out and playing really, really well. No, I think it's they, how you treat people. You know, I mean, obviously, to be a good player helps you be a good leader. There's no doubt about that. But uh, you know, being a good leader, you know, also is a, a big part of that is how you treat people. What do you What do you take of all this um, off season signings right now? Not a lot of people are signing, and it's kind of the trickle effect. You know, all the dominoes haven't yeah. really fallen yet. Yeah. So uh, do you think Do you think it's selfish? For like some of these big time free agents, you know, it's like because the average person's like 150 million. Like you're really yeah. gonna wait for a couple more. You know what? It, it's the hey, 700 guys do it in the world. It's uh, it's the 15 billion dollar industry. So I don't blame the guys. I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is, you know, uh, you know, if you if you have a chance to you know to make some money in a free market, free world. Uh, you know, and and you got one shot at it. You know, if you're going to get a big contract, this is your one shot. You know, I, I'm I'm a big believer that, that hey, they should they should see what's out there and see what the, what they can get because you know, like I said, it's a huge industry, fifteen billion dollar industry. And if the owners aren't getting it, you know, if the players aren't getting, it, the owners are getting it. So, you know, I like I like to I like to see it, you know, shared the way it is. I think that one of the big things this year is like I think the fact that teams don't want to go above the luxury tax right now, and it's really you know the, the Yankees, the Red Sox, all the teams that, that you know the Cubs that are usually out there spending on big free agents are not willing to do that. I think that's kind of held the market down. What do you think about the Marlins right now, their transitional phase? They've been getting some tough heat from the media. Yeah. Um, do you agree with that, or is it just kind well, of too early to tell? They're trying to, it's too early. They're trying to do what Houston did, what the Cubs did, you know, what, what, get some prospects back, trade, do well in the draft, develop players, then maybe go out and spend when they need to spend in five years from now. So you're starting to see a lot of clubs. That, that, a lot of clubs are trending in that direction. One last question here, then we'll let you get going. You're in Cincinnati right now for a few days. Would you ever want to manage for the Cincinnati Oh, guys? man. Well, you know, I, I, you do think about it. I mean, when the kids are a little older, and I've always thought about coming back to Cincinnati in some capacity, you know, maybe getting back in the game. So definitely not ruling it out. And uh, it would be, it would be a, that would be a 
pretty cool dream come true if I, I mean, would have a chance to do that. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm staying down, uh, you know, down by the hotel, uh, right by the park right now at our hotel. And uh, man, brings back so many good memories. Only problem is there's so many like restaurants, like apartments now all down there. I'm like, where was this? When I, like, when I drive out at Great American Ballroom, there's nothing going on. You know, now there's like this all this action and stuff. I'm, you know, wish I played now. Awesome. Hey, man, <laughs> really appreciate you taking the time. All right, Patrick. Thanks a lot, man. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Sean Casey. Next, we have on the top pitching coach in the country, Scott Stalker. We are now live with Scott Stalker, the best pitching coach in the entire country. Coach Stalker has coached several professional baseball players across several different organizations. Scott, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, man. So let's get into your background as a pitcher. Um, growing up, just from the very beginning, um, I know maybe if you would have came along, you know, nowadays your velocity would have been completely different and maybe you hadn't been overlooked because of, you know, was that the case back in your day? Were you overlooked because of how tall you were? It's hard to say. That was probably part of it. I threw fairly hard, but it wasn't like I was a guy in the 90s. But when you're five foot eight and about 60 coming out of high school, that's not exactly uh, what major league scouts or even college scouts are looking for. Um, that's changing a little bit now to where, you know, uh, schools like Wright State and other Division One programs are actually taking kids that are under six foot. Um, but in the era I grew up in and a lot of coaches around the 90s and, you know, early 2000s would say is uh, – Basically, a lot of it was size back then, which is the way the nature of the beast is going. And I think they've like even like measured your height really doesn't matter at all from a velocity standpoint. Is that right? Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, it came out in a uh, Will Carroll's book, Saving uh, the Pitcher, I believe, was the first time I had read that. Uh, and now it's just it's basically just dogma within the pitching industry, at least as far as I know. Um, and it comes down basically to body mass. It has nothing to do with height. Um, and they, they don't know exactly why, but it essentially just comes down to body mass. And, and the rest of it after that comes down to uh, levers and how you work and everybody who have different mechanics based off that and how you're going to move. So that old saying of, you know, if I'd only been 6'3", I would have been on a throw 95. You can't say that. No. That's a lie. No. Okay. Yep, you just got you just got to hit the weight room and be a meat shack and uh, hope everything so goes So being, would you want to be overweight? It's not necessarily overweight, but um, a lot of the old school thinking is the lighter and the more athletic and flexible you can be, the harder you will throw. Um, so, for instance, when I was in college, I was 5'8", and I, and I floated weights, but between 155 and 170. Um, and I, as far as I know, I never got over 88 miles per hour. Or if you're following, you know, at least some of the new science, well, maybe you're not trying to be 150 to 170 and, and, you, and you bulk up a little bit and have a little more muscle mass in 200 and see what happens. And, and you never know it. it Changes from pitcher to pitcher, but body mass is key. And that comes with all baseball now, which is why you see major leaguers being fairly bulky and at least in the uniform, some of them look overweight, but I guarantee they're pretty shredded and, and put together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, if they don't have the baggy pants, out. yeah. They're... Um, when you were in college, you went to Marietta College. Uh, you guys dominated uh, Division Three. I mean, I'm talking like national championships, right? Um what was your keys to getting hitters out when you were in college? Because that was one of the top college programs in the country. Yeah, that was a, a very special time. Uh, I, I rolled in there as a freshman thinking I was going to have a chance to be one of the number one or number two pitchers. And I get there in the first fall workout, and I'm seeing, I'll say, seven Division three upperclassmen throwing 86 to 94. 95 miles per hour, so I no, learned very the, quickly. Yeah, Division three. it's not really Division three. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot of people, you know – 
kind of look down on Division Three, and a lot of players like you know put their tail in between their legs and you know refuse to play Division Three, and they're they're heartbroken that they didn't get a scholarship. But I'm telling if you if you go Division Three, if if you're just not ready for D one or D two, and you work, you can still make it. And you know, there's many success stories out of there. A guy I played with uh, had a cup of coffee with the Yankees, Yankees uh, named Matt DeSalvo. Uh, he almost holds every single D three pitching record known to man. Uh, the only one he doesn't have is, I think, K per nine innings, and that goes to a guy you probably heard of named Billy Wagner. I have heard of him. Yeah, he wasn't too bad. <laughs> no, he he was he pretty good. Had a had a nice little run, I think, for uh, over a decade in the majors. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up though, because I had I was with Sean Casey, and um, he kind of talked about how you know he was a walker. He he ended up playing at Richmond. Uh, no scholarship offers though in high school. Nobody wanted him. You know he was slow. He even admitted that. Well, I mean that's just a fact. And but he could hit. And he said, he's like, you got to go to a school where you're going to play. He's like, I was a freshman All-American, but I was a freshman All-American because I got to play right away. So yeah. I was able to develop and then go to the summer and play in the Cape Cod and develop. And I feel like, I mean, you've coached more, a lot more kids than, than me. I mean, when you say, especially nowadays more than ever, it really doesn't matter where you go. You're going to get seen if you're good enough. Exactly. And I'm not trying to say, you know, obviously it's probably an advantage if you're getting a scholarship, you know, to an SEC school or something of that nature. But, you know, I I tell kids all the time and, you know, showcases are important and getting yourself exposed. But, you know, I promise if, you know, you run a six, five, sixty, or you're throwing 90, you know, plus on the bump or, you know, you you have an exit velo of 100, you're going to get seen. Um, How did you get hitters out in college? What was your uh, game plan philosophy when you were you were were you a weekend guy or were you out of the pen? Uh, I was both. Um, it kind of depended the way we usually ran at Marietta's your top two pitchers. Um, in that time period, we would start Saturdays, which is our league games and we'd start Tuesdays. So usually on Saturdays, we would throw all seven innings. Uh, if, if you happen to be the one or two, and then on Tuesdays, you would start and throw four or five innings. Um, and then maybe a spot relief, depending on how, how you felt. And then, uh, the rest of the guys would kind of do the closing role or whatever it would be. But the way that program was is ultra competitive and basically the most aggressive uh, competitive guys are going to start and get the ball as much as possible. What does that mean to be competitive as a pitcher? Uh, you don't back down from anything uh, whatsoever. Uh, aggressive mentality, you're not nipping the corners, you're attacking, you'll attack inside, um, and you are basically just go out there with no fear, fast tempo, and a lot of aggression. And that's on the field, off the field, in the weight room. You know, on, on every sprint we run, every calisthenic, every plyo, and every hill we sprint up. Did you ever have the yips when you were playing? Yes. Yes. Sean, I brought him up again. Sean Casey talked about how he had the yips, too. How did you get out of the yips? Uh, it took me almost an entire season to realize I even had them. You know, things just weren't working. My slider for the first time, you know, in my life was not working. And speaking of, the, you know, the pitch I really went to, I would just go as hard as I could with my fastball anywhere up in the eyes or low and away and then spin sliders. Um, probably at the end of most games, I bet 50% of my pitches are sliders, if not more. Really? Yeah, so, so that's how I went after it in my approach. But, uh, yeah, the yips – it's very hard as a player, but you have to be competitive enough and confident enough to just not care and get rid of them. Because that's basically what the yips come down to. Everybody's had them. I'm sure you've done it to where you've been frozen multiple times on the outside corner, and you, you know you're walking back 
to the dugout wondering why did I just not hack at that. Yeah. Uh, so it's a huge mental approach, and it's something that as coaches we have to make an, a conscious effort to make sure we're preaching you know positive, aggressive thoughts with our hitters, pitchers, fielders. Because uh, as soon as you start coaching in that defensive mindset um, to where you're just protecting not to strike out or just got to put the ball in play or you know make the routine play and don't mess up, it ends up getting in a player's uh, – psyche and they just can't do it would you watch swings though after you throw a pitch and you'd watch a hitter with you know takes a certain swing on a fastball and slider and then then change your game plan like that without a doubt um and i think that might be the toughest thing to try to teach teach without a doubt is you know if i'm calling pitches or not or trying to coach you know a 17 18 year old kid uh both behind the dish and on the mound how to read swings it becomes very tough and some of them will automatically become intimidated if somebody takes you know a thunder hack on a curveball and fouls it off, and they won't go back to that pitch. But you kind of have to read that hitter's um, swing, bat path, and how they react to a certain pitch and adjust from there. How many pitches would you normally throw when you played? Were you, were you like, in the hundreds? They even, they even keep, keep, like, pitch counts? They kind of kept pitch counts, but it, not. It, it didn't matter. Uh, the most pitches I think I've ever thrown in a game was in a summer game. I went 13 innings, and I think it was 212 pitches. What? Yeah. I, well, it was a bad start aluminum bats and uh you know there's an adjustment you know we've been playing wood all summer then all of a sudden you get the aluminum things are going into play a little bit different and this is back in a very juice bat era i would say versus how they are today and i think i gave up five or six runs in the first inning of a tournament game and uh settled down after that i think by the ninth inning which had been regulate no seventh inning i think was this game was regulation we tied it up six six and I think we won in the bottom of the 13th at 7-6, something around there. So that coach probably would have been fired if that happened today. Oh, without a doubt. He, he's, he's an old-school coach. And uh, as we all know, if you look at the history of baseball, some people don't believe in pitch counts. What do you um, believe? I do not believe in pitch counts. No. Quite honestly. At, at any level, any age? Uh, maybe when you're a, a youngin, especially if you don't have coaches that are trained to look at the mechanics of, of a player, especially it's kind of hard at you know nine years old, but – you know, I think a high school pitcher, I think some are built just with the way they naturally are to throw 60 pitches and they're done. And you have to train to get above that. Where I think some dudes can go out there, Pedro Martinez, for instance, and rock 130 every start and be fine. Clemens, I mean, not, he was a bigger guy, but same type of thing. Yeah. Rubber arm. Ex- exactly. And, and I would say, you know, rubber arm is kind of tough. Is, is that really true or not? You know, some of that stuff is, is still not known. We're, we're trying to figure out what actually makes someone be injured or have a rubber arm versus not. But I think in general, the more you throw, as long as you're monitored and have proper recovery along with a lifting program, stretching, and, again, scapular rotation or, or thoracic rotation and scapular load, you're that? good to go. What is that? Thoracic so, rotation. And- so basically that is how you're set up. And as human beings, just take our spine. And if our spines are not aligned and, and properly um, able to rotate on the right axes, you're end up going to get injured. Um, a lot of times there'll be something locked up in, in maybe a lat or a trap or your lower back or hamstrings or hip flexors. And even though that's the problem, we feel it somewhere else. So a lot of times what, where the root of the problem actually occurs goes uninjured, but the wheels blow off somewhere else and it usually ends up in the shoulder or UCL area. So how do you like maintain that or how do you do stuff to prevent that from happening like it's uh, like, like foam rollers or is that like actual exercises i think it's that could be an entire episode in itself okay uh i think a lot of it comes down to a proper strength and conditioning routine and i think that obviously depends on the age group you're dealing with and then the subset categories within that of just 
how they were built at that time, their developmental level, and then essentially what kind of levers they have to work. Because certain kids probably need to um, individualize what they're doing to work on their weaknesses. And what you see in a lot of kids is very weak scaps uh, to where if, if you look at them standing and they have their shirt off or a shirt on, a lot of times their, their shoulder blades are popped out and you can literally stick your fingers in between the shoulder blade and where they should have muscle. And that's at least one of the things I really look for and watch out for with any age group that I work with to make sure that we're So every program for every kid is going to be a little bit different. Or in, in a perfect world. I mean, that's, that's very tough to do. So we kind of have to generalize certain things. You know, I generalize warm up and recovery, but if I see a certain athlete having a specific issue, whether it's hip mobility or a lack of rotation throughout uh, their spine, or maybe how they're loading their scaps or a follow through, uh, we try to individualize the best we can there. Sounds like a lot of work. It is. It's, it's a lot easier just to kind of take the old school approach and, you know, you have these 15 guys and you're going to run them through the gauntlet and, and the strongest survive. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it just it just doesn't work in this time frame and we have too much technology at our hands to really take that approach if you're going to do it right. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm near an expert in the category and I need to pick the brains of many other people to help me really locate that, but I try to stay on top of it the best I can to make sure each individual has the best chance they can to – to see what they can actually do, what they're capable of. When you first started coaching and then compared to now, like how has your coaching philosophy uh, changed over the years from like a pitcher's perspective maybe? Uh, I would say I've chilled out a little bit Yeah. over time. Um, just, again, the, the college mentality and all of us have been, have been there in college of how competitive it can be. Uh, and I would say overall, even at the college level, that's kind of changed. I don't know if you've noticed that since you played and, and have gone out, but it's, it's a little bit more player-friendly and not quite the, the top-down uh, structure to where, you know, it's the militaristic style. You're scared of the head coach. Yes, basically. Um, it, it's much more the, the coaching staff, I think, in most organizations are more mentors. And, yes, you're your coach and you respect them and you work hard for them. But, but I really feel uh, what I'm seeing is there's a little bit more individualization uh, in the game. Do you and, like and that or no? I, I think it's needed. Um, every every single athlete's different. And, and yes, I'm not saying that um, – you shouldn't have a work ethic or, or be lazy, but certain kids probably need more time in the weight room than others or more time focusing on certain body parts or maybe more cardio or maybe more you know, explosive sprint work or whatever it is. Um, and some of that goes over my head, uh, especially on the weight room side where I speak with personal trainers about that to make sure I'm doing uh, what I can. And you know, all my guys, at least I greatly urge them to go to a personal trainer. And at least now at Madeira, we have one, so I don't have to worry about being the strength and conditioning coach anymore. And yeah, it does. So off. I've read before, not that long ago, that actually running long distance as a pitcher doesn't help really help at all. No. So is that just a waste of time running all those poles? I, I would say that's where evidence is, is proving now where, you know, when I grew up, they said your legs had to be strong to throw hard. So I'd go take off and run five miles because, well, this is running, this is stamina, it's going to make my legs stronger, I'm going to be better. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. I think any athlete that's um, uh, football, basketball, baseball, Sports like that, I think you should be able to sprint a mile and be okay. So I'm not saying, you know, you should just never run a mile or whatever it may be, but it's it's probably uh, much more beneficial to concentrate on short explosive movements, whether it's 10-yard sprints, 20, 30s, you know, just depending on the program you're running and your philosophies. But I'd say the overwhelming majority of trainers in the country right now and pitching coaches are starting to swing that way on it. What kind of common flaws do you see, you see, see among, among high school pitchers? Honestly, I'll just say a lack of knowledge and a lack of routine of what they're supposed to do, whether it's a proper warm-up, recovery, or understanding what, you know, uh, the work ethic and, and 
competitive nature of what you're supposed to be as a teammate. Um, so that, that's my job starting freshman year with these guys is to get them on board uh, with what that actually takes and what that means. Um, what does that mean to be a competitive teammate? A competitive teammate, uh, I think it's from Jansen Sports is the one I actually use. They, they have eight types of culture in there. And the, the culture you want to uh, really try to provide is a championship culture. And that's a culture where you put the team first. Obviously, you're trying to get the best as, as you can as an individual, but the team uh, comes first. You're doing what's best for the team, and the coaches and players respect each other. Uh, and that's a very shortened version of what it takes. But um, sometimes players need to realize that it's not all about the individual, which is very tough to do because I'll still so I'll sit here and preach at the same time that you do have to worry about yourself as an individual. But if you practice those uh, championship culture type mentality things, you're going to be a good individual and a good teammate. You're going to be better, and your team's going to benefit. Yeah, it is tough. I remember as a player, I mean – Naturally, you think about yourself. Yeah. It's not fun to bun, is it? No. <laughs> Even when everyone pats you on the back, when you come back in, I'd rather hit a home run. Yeah. But now as a coach, I do see where if you, if you do buy in, you, you will reach your potential eventually. And I think you got more experience this than me, but you know, in terms of sending guys to colleges, I mean, it's different now. I feel like you ha- you can't just you know roll out of bed and, and have a, a bad attitude even if you're a pretty good player. No, you have to you have to be a good teammate because if you're not, I mean you I mean you talk to more college coaches than me, but it seems like they're they're really shying away from guys who could be like poison in the clubhouse if they get to college. From my experience, when when a college coach really reaches out, like, hey, what is this kid about? And, and everybody's listening, guys, listen to this. The first thing they ask is, how was this kid? How does he act? How does he treat others? How is his family? They want to make sure you're carrying no baggage to where you're going to bring down the team, regardless where you throw 88 or 96 or, you, you know, you run a seven flat or six, six or all those other intangibles that obviously they're looking for. You have to be a good person. You have to be able to communicate and look your coaches in the eye um, and do all the things that I think sometimes we forget about um, as baseball players and baseball coaches because we're so concerned about, you know, getting better you know, from a physical standpoint, but there's so much more in the game than that. So much more. And then the thing is, if you, yeah, if you do throw 95, and, but you go there freshman year, you get hurt, you're out all year. Well, if you got a bad attitude, I mean, A, you're not helping the team. I mean, on the field, let's be honest. I know you can still be help the team, but on the field, you're not helping the team. Then off the field, you're, you're killing the team because you got a bad attitude. So that that's like one of the main reasons why I believe that having, you know, why college coaches, especially these days, have really realized you have to be a good good person first and foremost. And you can't – you have to have self-control. You can't – I mean, I've played with players who they would ground out and just lose it. And then everyone – everybody – I've seen players in, in on our dugout go from one end to the other when they would come back. I'm, I'm sure maybe yeah. you have too. We've all seen it. Yeah. Well, nowadays that, that just – that doesn't fly. I mean, at least from my experience. I don't know if you've, you know, from a... Mine, mine too. Mine. Um, yeah. You, you never know. There's a lot of programs all out there, but I think most coaches would rather not have that. Rather I mean, not, unless you're like Bryce Harper type of talent, yeah. which there's only one of, at least at, that, at his age, you know, that's 16, 17. It's just, it's not worth it. And you just, you're messing up a lot of opportunities, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's, again, that's just a process of maturing and some kids they they figure it out too late and and they miss their chance where if you can have an even head on your shoulders at at an early age you're going to be better off and that's what I try to help with as much as possible but at the same time you're playing with that psychological game is where am I changing this player so much that he's going to stop being aggressive you know because it's it's 
it's not a bad thing for one of my players, in my opinion, to be upset they got out. But it's the reaction of, of what's upset. And I think Benintendi always did a great job of that. You know, he'd come in the dugout. He wouldn't throw his helmet or slam bats or anything. But you could tell he was steamed, you know, just a bit, take a couple deep breaths, and then boom. It was like nothing ever happened again. Right. And that's, that's also kind of leadership too, right? I mean, yeah. I look at a guy like Derek Jeter. They look at like kind of the ultimate kind of leader, the captain. Yeah. I've, have you ever seen him throw his helmet or anything? No, I mean, they could always pan away on, on, on the screens, but that's it, true. he doesn't I mean, seem like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from what I've heard. So, I mean, that's that's just, it's leadership as well, which, you know, you learn as you grow. Um, I know you guys do driveline, top velocity. I mean, actually, no, you don't do top velocity. You do driveline. Let's first talk about driveline. Um, what are your thoughts about driveline? You like it? You love it? You don't like it? I mean, what do you think? You've, I know you do a lot of research on everything. So. Yeah, uh, I love it. Um, there's a bunch of different weighted ball programs out there. Um, I shied away from all the last three or four years as I took over the program because basically I didn't know if my kids were going to be set up uh, to do a specific program. And I'm just talking just strong enough, physical enough, and having proper throwing mechanics. So I, t- I did a very, very light hybrid of what I did at Marietta uh, mixed with some holds and some reverse throws at uh, driveline and top velocity and some other programs do. And my guys had developed enough as uh, juniors and seniors this year. I said, let's just go all in. So we uh, purchased driveline, implemented a lot of their uh, velocities, warm up and recovery techniques. And it's, it's really worked out for us. You seen a bunch of gains in velocity Uh, on average. And I don't have the charts in front of me. We're going to say six miles per hour on a running gun, meaning just a crow hop. So obviously you may not gain the six or seven on the mound, but um, the whole point of, of driveline or just baseball in the 21st century, hitting, pitching, is to do it with intent. Um, and I tell players they got to have a piece of the pie, purpose, intent, and effort. Um, if you're not playing baseball with those three things in mind, you're probably not going to be as good a- as you could be. Intent meaning? The intent to do damage. Whether you're throwing or hitting, you have to. Um, and, again, that comes down to that aggressive mentality. I'd rather my players swing and miss at a pitch by you know, a foot and a half and be scared and get the yips and, you know, ground out weekly to second base to end an inning. It's so tough to get them out of that mindset. It's very tough, and and it's really tough. And I know you, you know, do a lot of research your own, but when you're talking about trying to give them mechanical cues to help them out, but at the same time trying to let them figure out intrinsically how to hit hard, it becomes very tough. And I think that's a balancing act that most coaches uh, really struggle with. From the research I've done, external cues are what I've been, what I've from what I've read and what I've you know researched. You know, giving a kid an external cue to focus on, your body will align itself um, correctly when you focus on an external cue versus you know telling them something internal or keep your front shoulder correct, something like that. So that's what I try and do anyway. Um, same thing. I take it for you. I guess is it different as a pitcher giving external internal cues? I think that's philosophical. Uh, I think sometimes you have to break something down for them um, and give them that idea of keeping you know, y- y- your knee back or making sure you're dropping correctly or-, or hand placement. But right now, at least in our system, we've done that. And now all I'm worried about is them executing strikes, um, which is easier said than done. Strikes aren't as easy to throw as everybody thinks they are, right? The old, the old high school coach saying, just bear down, throw strikes, bend your back. Um, and I promise as a coach, and I, I think I'm, I'm holding true to that, those are a few of the things I will never, ever say to a pitcher. 
Yeah, obviously they're not trying to throw balls. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, Coach. I, I meant to bounce those two sliders up in the dirt and throw one over his head. That's exactly what I was going for with bases loaded. So is exit velocity kind of similar to what you implement with, like, the weighted balls where it's just trying – you're just trying to – you know, weighted balls, you're just trying to gain velocity off the mound. And then exit velocity, what do you guys do to try to get um, increase in that? All we've been doing is uh, underload, overload bats – uh, just the principles of swinging hard, and we're hitting heavier balls. And uh, essentially what we're doing right now is just telling them to hit the ball hard. And, you know, we've done the research. We set up the cones until I can afford a, a fancier device. But what we're really trying to do with most of our kids is practice uh, practicing getting on plane, swinging as hard as possible, and squaring up the baseball, and um, really focusing on negative 10 to 10 degrees contact. And the reason for that is that's usually where most guys can hit the ball the hardest. And for, you know, especially high school guys, they see the major leaguers just dropping bombs. They don't realize that those bombs uh, oftentimes are line drives. And if they're not, they're, you know, they're leaving the bat at 95 plus miles per hour up to 120 at a 30 degree angle. And you know what? Most of our guys just aren't physical enough to do that. So we're just measuring the numbers and showing them what they're capable of. But we're getting, we're getting closer to in season, right? So how... How differential is the training program going to be once it's in season for like weighted balls and drive line and just you know doing different overload underload training stuff for the bats? We just have to scale it down, like with everything. Uh, drive line basically is going to go into a recovery phase where we're continuing to throw a, a little bit with the with the uh, the heavier balls and especially in my, in my opinion the pivot pickoff is the most genius thing I've seen out of their program. I really love it for um, rotation and basically loosening up the lat and creating better arm action. Um, so that and reverse throws are going to stay in because I think any player of any age can benefit from that because you're dealing with uh, basically your muscles in the back of your body, which makes you uh, have all your power with velocity and helps you to decelerate to where your arm's not trying to fly off. Um, so we'll continue to do that. But, you know, the actual velocity days with running guns are, are going to be scaled down quite a bit. Uh, and hitting wise, we're going to still swing heavy bats and hit heavy balls, at, you know, almost like at a warm up pace and then go out to the field and make our mechanical adjustments as we watch ball flight. So doing the weighted balls for driveline is, I guess, it's for injury prevention and then velocity as well. In my opinion, yes. You know, obviously when you go out like driveline or some of these other guys have and you're almost trying to create a new dogma in the game. Um, you know, it's a, it's a total paradigm shift and you're questioning everything that's been done, which is kind of weird if you think about it, cause we've been throwing weighted balls for, I think a hundred years or better. I mean, it's nothing new. I started throwing them at 11 cause I discovered a waterlogged ball. Uh, I could throw it and I felt like a regular baseball was, was a little bit easier to throw. Um, I think driveline, if it's followed correctly, I'm not saying, you know, they'll, they'll still be experimenting over there, um, and changing some of the stuff they do. I think it's great. It's a great way. Just, uh, just the warm up routine is a good way for, uh, prevention of injuries. And obviously a lot of coaches would disagree with that because they think it injures, but again, I'm going to go with it. It's not the weight of balls injuring the player. It's the player not being set up right somewhere throughout their entire body, whether it's mobility or hips, et cetera. And, uh, anytime I see, driveline shoot it out i make sure to retweet it and say players i will i will just send this out every time i see it and weighted balls are a very very small part of gains and velocity it comes down to an entire routine with, with basically first of all you're screening to make sure you're ready to throw 
Um, if you get a kid that's not set up right and has a uh, weak core or weak scaps or tight hamstrings, they may need to do some initial work in the weight room or w- with just some extra flexibility exercises to make sure they're ready. And then after that, you ease into weighted balls. And, and essentially, when you become a machine that truly wants to get better and you're on the right diet and you're on the right warm up, you're on the right recovery, um, and you're doing everything in your power to get better, it can be very good. Um, if you're not monitored and you refuse to listen to what's going to be or what's important, then you can end up injured. So diet does matter. I wouldn't say necessarily, and I don't mean diet. And as a sense, you need to, you know, again, lose weight, but it's probably much better if you're not eating, let's say fast food and processed foods and you're getting good protein, red meat, lean meats, fish, vegetables, brown rice, you know, you know the gig. The thing is, though, we were talking before the Iron Man, Cal Ripken Jr. After games, uh, so I was told Coach Stocker this earlier. I was told from a very, very reliable source that uh, Cal Ripken Jr. would you normally players lift before games professionally. Obviously, you know, late night games or starting at seven o'clock, not getting done till later. Cal would like to lift after the game, and you know, to think about the game and, and so forth, and. What he would do is, obviously, most people, I would say, would drink water or Gatorade. He would drink uh, Bud Light during his workout. So he'd have 6 to 12 Bud Lights by the time his workout was done. and Solid. That's how you play all those consecutive games. Yeah. Well, like, like I tell players, um, first of all, we may never know the true measurements of what makes Cal Rifkin Cal Rifkin or, or Junior or, pay, you know, we can go along the list forever, Babe Ruth. Mickey Mantle, those guys had no sort of uh, dietary no. plan whatsoever. Um, but I would say that times are changing and we are not the creatures we used to be. Uh, most of us don't grow up working in a factory, carrying wood and five-gallon buckets and doing construction in the off-season and then rolling out of bed and playing games. Uh, we tend to be you know, at, at school or in an office six to ten hours a day, hunched over a computer, and we got to go about things a little bit differently. Also... Freaks of nature are freaks of nature. That's true. Yeah, we'll put him in that category. Yeah. You play that many games in a row, you're... There's only one, right? There's only, there, and I don't think there'll ever be another one. Uh, I, no way. I don't think in this day and age there'll ever be Because they won't another. even let guys, you know, play a lot of times. No. You know, they make them... I, I would say your best bet at that happening today would be a first baseman yeah. or a DH in the American League. Right. But yeah. still, you're probably going to get some rest. It's crazy. Yep. You bought a rap soda machine... Uh, yes, you think you were the first person I know to buy to buy one. Um, what what is that? What is Rapsodo? So Rapsodo, at least it's one of my biggest dreams ever. Um, for the for the simple fact is I can use my fairly cheap slow mo camera and I can ask a player, did, did you see that? Did you feel that? Um, but you're talking to fifteen to twenty year old kids usually, and sometimes they don't understand what they're actually doing. Uh, so Rapsodo gives us the ability not only to measure velocity, which is probably the, the least important thing that that does. It allows us to measure uh, spin rate, which is huge in, in the new era of baseball, at least with some of our organizations. Uh, it allows you to measure spin axis and then horizontal and vertical break. Um, so what that allows us to do is essentially see mechanically what a pitcher is doing and then how it is actually leaving their hand and where that ball is moving and how it is behaving in a Eventually, we can go down to the core of it and figure out why the ball is moving in a certain manner and what we can do to either uh, make it spin faster or spin in a different way to make you a better pitcher. 
for those that's as simple as I can put it. I for, guess. for those listening, though, like what spin rate? Like why does that? So what we're finding out, and this is the baseball community as far as I know, and I'm sure somebody has more information that I need that I don't have yet. Um, but spin rate can be highly correlated to what kind of pitcher you are. Um, and, and what that means is I think it's, oh, 1,800 to 2,200 spin rate on a fastball is like the most hittable stage of a fastball in the game. So some of us will look at it as now I think the major league uh, fastball, what's considered BP to a hitter is 90 miles per hour. Well, not only 90 miles per hour, but if you're in that 1,800 to 2,200 spin rate, there's just not enough sink or enough perceived rise in the ball to really be able to square it up. Um, or, or you can square it up because of that, where if you're pitching at a higher spin rate, some of these dudes, you know, everyone's told, right, uh, from a young age pitching, don't live up in the zone. That's bad news. Well, actually, you can live up in the zone, and hitters have a tough time with it. It's tough. Yeah, it's very tough, especially if you're throwing 95 or so, and your spin rate's, you know, 2,500, 3,000, whatever it is plus. The ball does not look like it's sinking whatsoever. Um, so at least in our minds, it looks like, it is rising, and that makes it very tough to stay on top of. So that's or the, that's the actually value old language, of but spin rate is making the ball is basically making the ball move, making the ball move, and uh, just act in a certain manner. So it does, yeah, uh, it it could be a side to side movement or the perceived sink versus rise in the ball, and then after that spin rate, then it comes down to spin axis and how the ball is actually spinning through the air. So basically, how much are we get you know creating kind of a gyro effect versus Magnus force. Have you been able to use uh, Rapsodo on any uh, major league pitchers compared to like uh, college or high school and like see the difference? I'm still uh, experimenting with that. I'm getting a pretty good data now to where I think I can really start to compare and see what these kids are capable and where we need to go. Um, I lucked out, and Brent Suter was actually working out the other day at Champions. I was helping out UC Claremont, and he jumped on. Uh, I didn't even have time to create him an account, so I just threw him on somebody else. I'm like, here, I'll remember that. I just want to see what's going on. And uh, he's kind of a freak to begin with because he's one of those guys that does not throw very hard, and he's getting outs um, in the major leagues. Usually you don't see a guy throwing 86 to 89 anymore that's really that successful. I mean, you have to go back to Jamie Moore and Greg Maddox uh, to really see that. Um, so what did you see, like, on his thing? Like, is this ball moving? Is his spin rate way different than everybody else's? I'd have to pull it up. I haven't even checked it out. This literally happened a few days ago. And then uh, the next day, actually, some minor leaguers uh, guys came in. Seth Varner for the Reds. Uh, who else was it? Zach Logue, who I believe is with – Blue Jays. Blue Jays, yeah. And then Ted Andrews is with the White Sox. So we got some decent information there. Uh, and I, I now have enough. I, it was a learning curve with me just setting it up and really making sure I know. And today I think I've perfected the last thing with some of my high school guys. So uh, those three guys are going to come in with me Saturday, and we're going to work an hour and a half on, on spin rate and pitch development and really seeing if, if what they perceive is happening to their ball is actually happening and, and hopefully uh, give them some positive data before they go off to spring training. It sounds like you've got to be pretty smart to, to know this information. I don't know if I'm smart. I'm obsessed. So How many helps. hours a day do you think you study video? Uh, oh God, that I don't even know. Like you'll text me like three in the morning sometimes. Oh yeah, I just wake up early and get ideas in my head and just go watch them. Just baseball. Yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'll just I'll look up old video. Um, I, I'm I'm really bad as a coach at taking care of myself. I forget to do that, so I'm trying to dedicate thirty minutes of my day on a treadmill now. But I still have my iPad up and let me see. I think I watched Pedro's two thousand nine World Series start versus the Yankees last. Just still tossing <laughs> eighty eight miles per hour and just sawing them off. You yeah. Know? Um, but again, that's that's an art form with what he's doing. So I don't know. I don't pay attention. But if if I'm not teaching, I'm probably thinking baseball. Uh, I'd say so. Yeah. 
there's one piece of advice you could give to a high school or junior high school pitcher out there or just a parent of a kid, uh, what would it be? Uh, start the right processes early if you think you're going to make it. I see so many kids that by their junior year say, oh, coach, I would love to play college, um, but they haven't taken the proper steps to make that happen. And I'm not saying, you know, maybe if they started at a younger age, it would have happened, but you're almost never going to have that chance. So you need to understand what it takes to play at that level earlier than later. Um, and then after that, regardless, if it's really your passion, never give up. And I think uh, Coach Spring said it, make them take the jersey off your back. I'd say I'd double that up with make sure the police are removing you from the premises of every tryout ever. If, if this is what you want to do, you stick with it until, you know, do you wish you would have played longer? Yes and no. Um, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if I'd have continued to play longer. Um, and I really had to make that decision at 24. I'm still stuck at 88. My slider's good. I got different arm angles, but it's not like no one's knocking on my door. And I didn't pursue it either because I just read what I perceived to be the writing on the wall with an undersized pitcher who's not throwing gas, right? So I, I could have possibly made it on somewhere and had a chance. Uh, independent ball. Um but I don't necessarily regret my decision ever than not knowing if it could have just, you know, just a year somewhere, you know, like nothing big, but just maybe another year. But uh, I made the decision to go uh, get another master's degree and start my career early. The professional side of it, the other professional side. Yeah, the real life stuff. Yeah, the real life stuff. That's not fun. No, well, I no. guess it, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, but well, that's what I tell players still. You know, a lot of you guys are coming back this age and, you know, you're, you're in that those tween years, like, man, do I give it one more year or do I not? And I always, any time a player asks me, I err on the side of one more year. You have the rest of your life to wake up to an alarm and work your job and go home and pay bills. Yeah, when you're 80, I don't think, ah, oh, when I was 20, you know, it's yeah. really killing me now. You know, the bank account would be so much better if when I was 24 I would have worked one more year. Yeah. I don't think man, so. Man, I really missed that year of work, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Coach, appreciate it. Wish we could go longer. Actually, I got to run up. I got to run a practice here. Um, you're our first reoccurring guest on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you. So uh, this episode will be with Sean Casey. And Very cool. uh, you'll be hitting cleanup right behind him. All right. Tomorrow. All right. All right. Thanks, Coach. Thank you.